Welcome everyone. We're going to be talking today to uh, André Donné et William Boubien-Souligny regarding our Venus Congestion podcast part two. And uh, well, thank you for meeting with me again for what um, is going to be, I'm sure, a, a very interesting conversation about the more advanced stuff now that we've covered. What probably you consider the basics, but I would consider advanced to start with. But either way. Um, so the goal of this presentation today is going to be talking more about uh, therapeutics in special populations. And so we've gathered a couple of questions I've thought about, but also a lot of questions from Twitter. Um, hopefully after all this, uh, we'll have a couple more questions and we can do a, like a third session if you're interested, if I didn't bug you too much with these two, and we'll go from there. So the first question I have for you is, what are your thoughts about the use of um, specific therapies, whether inotropy, diuretics, in response to findings um, that are in the specific tailoring of management of volume in patients and, and essentially in response to what you see on the echo? So, uh, and we, we've discussed this last time. So whenever we have signs of venous congestions, and basically what we're seeing is a, a Doppler signal, we're seeing an ultrasound signals that tell us that uh, there's some significant evidence that the right atrial pressure is elevated, okay? And the right atrial pressure can be elevated because there's fluid overload, but also because there could be pulmonary hypertension. Okay? So then, before deciding what you do with these ultrasound signals, you have to get an understanding of what's the reason, what's the most likely reason. And this is, again, back to baseline, back to the history, to the other physical examinations, to some lab tests, before deciding what you will do with this information. Yeah, one, one interesting aspect is that uh, what is fluid status or fluid overload, you know? Uh, total body water can be increased, but venous pressure can be low. So, for example, you know, in distributive shock, if you give a lot of fluid and this fluid is distributing in the interstitial compartment, you may have a patient that is fluid overloaded, but uh, his portal doppler may be normal, at least now, when he becomes, when vasoplegia resolves, maybe we'll mobilize this fluid and the portal Doppler, the, the venous Doppler signals will change over time. Well, I guess the question in that to me is, well, he mobilizes or he just increases his essentially tone versus recruiting what's in the periphery. And immediately the other thing that you think about is things like septic cardiomyopathy and what happens in sepsis when you have it. And there's, there's a lot of papers, if you go back to like 70s physiology with sepsis and cardiomyopathy, that, that seems to suggest in some cases it's an adaptive mechanism in which the heart dilates as more volume total decreases its EF, but cardiac output stays the same. And I imagine when you get out of the vasoplegia, you end up increasing your afterload to some extent, but you also probably have some resolution of that cardiac function and suddenly, boom, you end up with high pressures, high feeling pressures that happen in a really quick manner, not necessarily because you did anything, just because the body healed. Yeah, it's the, the rose paradigm, the resuscitation, stabilization, and then the patient is ready to lose the fluid he perhaps accumulated, uh, and maybe transition between the Doppler uh, 
the venous Doppler signals may signify that the patient is now ready to, to be de-resuscitated. Well, that's a very, very interesting point, right? And, and let's delve into that, into therapies. So a lot of people ask, um, I think the best way to ask this is, um, can you look at those changes when they're not cres- uh, crossing the thresholds between different vexus grades to help you decide when to increase, tailor, and so on. And one of the specific questions that popped out is, can you use the degree of the S to D ratio to guide therapy other than simply looking at normalization? I guess the twist on this is, I guess you can talk about that from, from crossing grades, but I'm more interested in when you're stuck in a grade, is there anything in there knowing that some patients might never normalize that you can use to guide therapy? I would be careful uh, using uh, the S over D ratio of the hepatic vein. Uh, one of the reasons is that you know, most of our studies has been done in cardiac surgical patients, and the ratio is uh, extremely rarely normal after cardiac surgery. And to understand the ratio, remember that the S wave is a function of the uh, systolic motion of the tricuspid valve. And often this longitudinal motion is uh, significantly disturbed after cardiac surgery. So uh, this can be, so, so in the vast majority of patients, I'm talking if you talk about post-op hearts, or if you talk about a patient who has a VVI pacemaker, this, uh, this value will always, almost always be abnormal. So you cannot use it alone in taking a clinical decision. What about in non-cardiac surgery? Do we have anything for sepsis, uh, for outpatient, uh, you know, like uh, renal failure patients or patients in AKI? Is there anything like that when we go out of the cardiac world? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not aware that, uh, for example, in the outpatient, uh, the hepatic vein waveform has been used to tailor therapy, for example, in the heart failure uh, clinic. I'm not aware of that. Uh, another thing is the portal uh, portal Doppler waveform. You said that, uh, of course, uh, if it's less than 50%, does that carry prognosis significance? That is this important if the portal positivity is 10, 20, 30? Uh, the one important thing is that uh, when portal uh, positivity is very low, it becomes difficult to measure. So there may be a lot of inter-observer uh, variability between measurements. But we, we've in one study we shown that even a, a, a portal volatility between thirty and fifty percent still seem to carry some uh, degree of prognostic significance. We showed that it is associated with with delirium after cardiac surgery. But it, I think it's still, of course, we chose the the cutoff of fifty percent because it was a cutoff that was already used in the cardiology literature, and choosing an a priori cutoff is more simple in a statistical way, uh, but uh, w- there's still an association with, with the portal flow positivity as a continuous variable too. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing, right? The, the vexus gradations are, are, are very binary in a way, and that's not the right word because there's three grades, uh, but it, it's a continuous thing. I think what I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that at this point, we don't really have the data to say that we are able to extrapolate or evaluate the continuous uh, nature of the variable. Is that is that about right? Yeah, it's probably a, like a type of J-shaped curve. So I, I 
it must, this is my opinion. I'm, I'm not sure we have the data to prove it, but I don't think that between zero to thirty percent the increase is significant. But below thirty percent, I I think more the positivity increase, the more it will be significant clinically. Uh, we've we've seen some case, some extreme case with portal for reversal too. Yeah, and in fact, what we see is the dynamic nature of these of these uh, elements. So, for instance, when we did the uh, the, the paper that we uh, that William published in the Journal American Heart Association, uh, we uh, we were able to demonstrate that it's really on the the second and third day that you have your peak in positivity, you have the peak in the portal in the renal, and also that's what we know clinically when the patients are the sickest, often they get their pulmonary edema. Uh, if you look at cytokines, they often increase at that time period. And uh, so it's a very dynamic process. And, and typically, uh, that might be the sign where the patient is mobilizing his fluid. And then if uh, there's one place which intervention might help in those patients who are unable to mobilize the, the fluid, might be at that time period, at that critical time period. But that's why I would see those elements more as a way to follow the patients to see how his body is reacting and then deciding more on the dynamic aspect and the dynamic change on these parameters than just looking at one parameter and say, okay, I have to do this because I'm seeing this, this type of abnormality. So you're talking about the dynamic evolution of the patient or dynamic testing? Because that's another interesting point. Can you use VEXUS in a dynamic fashion as people have in the past used it as the VTI as an example? People will do a passive leg raise and look at the VTI. And I know you're, you're quite fond of this, André. Um, but what about VEXUS? Because I guess the question I have to some extent is how quickly does it change? And can you use it dynamically as a parameter to decide this, is, this patient's going to not necessarily need volume, but respond to volume or respond to a therapy like using uh, inodilators or pulmonary vasodilators, things like that. Any thoughts? Well, we have a couple of uh, observations that we made. Uh, one of the first uh, study that William published, a retrospective study, he noticed that in the patient who had elevated creatinine and significant portal positivity, almost all of those patients reduce their creatinine uh, with a reduction in the portal positivity, which indicates that most of these patients had venous congestion, like renal venous congestion. And as you reduce the congestion of the kidney, the creatinine improves. So, so this, was, uh, this was one of his first uh, uh, publication. We also reported in several occasions when uh, you have a significant venous congestion or portal hypertension, when you give inhaled vasodilators. And the beauty with inhaled vasodilators uh, is that it will work in both uh, pulmonary hypertension and also venous congestion. So when you give those agents, we've seen on several occasions almost normalization of the portal positivity and reduction in the degree of venous congestion. So we're able to, uh, to see that some intervention will uh, improve it. But also we saw uh, in normal volunteers, if you give fluid bolus in a normal volunteer very, very rapidly, you'll see portal positivity appearing. Okay, so so we have to keep in mind that uh, uh, this this parameter uh, will be fluid uh, sensitive. So that's why when we're looking at it, 
uh, I would say we're looking at it more in a static condition. And there are studies eventually to be done uh, to see, uh, you know, how compliant is the venous uh, system, you know, when, when you're administrating or when you're removing fluid. And these are probably some of the studies which will need to be done in the future. It's actually quite interesting because I remember, like, I played around with the VTI a fair amount just to test it out and see. And, and it, it's mind-blowing how most people, when you give them a bolus, the, v, a bolus, the VTI goes up. Interesting is half an hour later, is it still there? And I, I suspect for, for, for Vexus, it's going to be something similar. But the question then becomes, when you gave inodilators, how quickly was there a change was there something that you could you test out dynamically? I'm going to give it for 10 minutes, test it out, and see what changes? Or is it something that you need to give, come back an hour later? What are you, what's your experience on this? So we're, uh, we're just finishing a, a, a retrospective analysis of uh, patients in the operating room in which we administered uh, inhaled prostacycline and merinone. And uh, in fact, the study will be submitted shortly. So we look at more than 100 patients. And, uh, and what we saw when you give uh, inhaled prostacycline and merinone, uh, the number of people who will respond favorably is around 77 to 80%. Okay? And in those patients, you'll see the effect within 15 to 20 minutes. Okay, so so that's what we've uh, we've seen when you look at uh, parameters. But also interestingly, not only you'll see that the portal possibility may normalize, but you also see that the pulmonary hypertension uh, become less severe. The systemic arterial pressure uh, stays the same or increase. So one of the parameters that we use uh, to evaluate those patients is the ratio of the mean arterial pressure over the mean pulmonary artery pressure, and in though the responders there was an increase in about 33%. That was the average of those uh, who are responding to the drug. But also you would see, for instance, uh, increase in the brain saturation, increase in your entitled CO2. Uh, you can see an increase in your cardiac output, normalization of your portal positivity. So there's different signs also that goes in, in the same direction that, that you would uh, expect as an improvement in your uh, cardiac function when you give those agents. Very interesting. I'm going to pivot to William for a second there because it made me think of something. Have you ever done this on the ward where you've given, let's say, a big bolus of Lasix, they urinate six or 700 suddenly, and you, you look pre and post? As, have you noticed that it changes? Have you done this? And have you noticed in those situations actually changes that rapidly the signal? Yeah, well, for, for the diuretics, the changes are not that quick, right? You, you can achieve a good diuresis times multiple liters per day, but it will not be that quick. However, with mechanical fluid removal, it's not her story. And as you said uh, previously, um, after a dialysis session where you just remove three liters, even if your portal vein is normal, you should wait maybe an hour or two before making any judgment because you just uh, depleted the intravascular compartment and you must wait before you you see if, uh, if you know you have an accurate assessment using venous doppler yeah and and of course remember in those in those patients and that's where i tripped up when i asked the question i was like well you can't look at the kidney yeah it's or different. can you or can you that's a good question because some patients have a bit of residual some that so those that that, that still pee a little bit while on dialysis and so on might still have some flow well they do for yeah. sure so what happens to those do we know yeah it's very well 
or chronic kidney disease. Of course, as chronic kidney disease progresses, it becomes more and more difficult to perform renal Doppler. Uh, some patients with diabetes still have some good-sized kidneys with, with adequate but you're right, in the hemodialysis unit, it's very rare that we'll spend uh, half an hour trying to get the signal. Yeah. I would be very curious to, to, to see the difference between those that don't pee anymore and those that do if there's still some signal in some patients. But you're right, it might be very difficult to do. Curiosity killed a cat in this case, I think. So um, I'm going to just ask a, another question, I think, that, um, that popped up uh, in terms of ther ther therapeutics. Somebody asked uh, on Twitter, is it possible to use vexisdermin if the patient needs volume as compared to has too much or a dysfunction of, of congestion? It kind of goes back to the first thing you said initially, but does it mean, like, would you in a situation where the patient has, um, you know, normal portal vein tracing, um, is a little bit hypotensive in the example and so on, is that good enough to say I should give volume or is that giving you permission to maybe say the patients could tolerate volume better? Yeah. That's a good uh, question. And in fact, in the operating room, where uh, we're lucky because we have uh, we use routinely uh, right ventricular pressure waveform, so we can correlate the aspect of the right ventricular pressure waveform and those parameters. And uh, in, in fact, what we do when we are winning off bypass and you you know infuse fluid to patient, uh, you'll see that. Uh, Initially, it's well tolerated, you know, when the portal positivity is normal and your right ventricular pressure waveform is completely flat in diastole, those patients will tolerate fluid. But at a certain point, you'll see in front of your eyes, you'll see that this normal slope on your right ventricular pressure waveform, or if you use a central venous pressure, what you'll notice, you'll notice the V wave will increase progressively. And that means that now you're starting to distend the right ventricle. And this is when we stop. So I, if, if I have a question, you know, should I give or not fluid, and the portal positivity is completely normal, I might not hesitate as much as if I have 50% portal positivity. Uh, if I have 50% portal positivity, I know that there's already uh, a significant venous congestion on the organ. And this uh, might tell me that I need to be careful uh, administering fluid in this patient. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't give it if you think the patient from other parameters, history, clinical evolution, so on, needs it, right? It's not like a stopgap. I see this, I don't do it. It's a, I see this, I'm more careful. Yeah, Is that about right? Exactly. Like uh, this morning, I was at the bedside and uh, we're examining a patient uh, who was uh, uh, had a mitral valve and a tricuspid valve replacement. The patient was uh, on vasoactive drugs. There was RV dilatation. There was significant portal positivity. There was maybe 50% portal positivity. However, uh, we had a fantastic view on the pulmonary artery and we could calculate that the cardiac output was probably six liters. The uh, mixed venous was normal. The delta PCU2 was normal. So clearly in this patient, there was really, really no indication to give more fluid because the, 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 uh, the index of, uh, of oxygen transport were completely, completely normal. And in this patient, there was signs of venous congestion. So in this patient, you could say, well, I'll wait and see. But you could also decide that maybe if I start removing a little bit of fluid 
on the right ventricle, maybe is, is function well tolerated. And sometimes uh, you have to stay humble and it's trial and error. And you can say, because you're probably on the flat part of your starting curve and you may not need to have a CVP of 17 in this patient. And probably you have the same cardiac output if you reduce gradually your CVP maybe to 10 and you'll be able to monitor on real time your cardiac output just by looking at this uh, nice image that you have on the heart. So I would say personalize your treatment decide, try and see, try and see, it's trial and error. And, uh, but always, I would say, I'm always very careful of pushing more fluids in a patient, especially also another elements, which we may not mention, is that look at your maximum velocity in your portal vein. So a normal positivity, a normal velocity would be around 20 to 30. If a patient has portal positivity, but a velocity of more than 30, that means that he has significant, a significant cardiac output. Okay, and there's no need to increase more this cardiac output in, that, in such a patient. Yeah, in patients uh, with AKI, have you had similar experiences? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Well, how do you use it, I guess, is yeah. a better question because we talk about cardiac surgery a lot more, but I'm curious what the usual patients is. The medical medicine patients have an AKI, I've been sick for a couple of days. Uh, do, we've given a lot of volume. Does he need more or did I catch up? I think uh, the main reason why I do vexus in patients with acute kidney injury is to see if congestion could be a mediator of acute kidney injury or may, um, may hamper kidney recovery if the kidney injury is already done, for example, in, in acute tuberular necrosis. Uh, so it's really to rule out that congestion is a significant physiopathologic factor that uh, amper kidney function. Um, to answer your question, uh, the, I want a, a normal portal vein will not necessarily trigger me to give fluid. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the vexus, I think, in general, is a static parameters because we, we don't modify preload. It's, a, it's not a preload modifying maneuver. So I don't think it's a fluid responsiveness test. Uh, but as you said, some people may have, may have different opinion on its ability to be um, a stopgap where this contraindicated. Um, as we discussed in the last podcast, in some case, some very specific pathologies, such as severe chronic pulmonary hypertension, patient may still increase their cardiac output even if they're, they, they're, they have some of the venous uh, Doppler signals. So there are situations where you would say, I have a patient in AKI, I have pulsatility of, on my um, portal vein, uh, but I would still sometimes give fluid or that, that would happen? Yes, this happens very occasionally. Uh, I have a patient uh, in dialysis uh, um, in the, the last uh, two years that uh, were, were had severe right ventricular failure, very like terminal right ventricular failure and his portal vein was positile no matter what we did. If we removed three liters, the portal vein was still positile after that. I never seen this portal vein non-positile. So for this patient, you know, it's, it becomes uh, it becomes not really, uh, uh, you, can, you can really use it to, to, to personalize the treatment. That's a pretty extreme patient. So how, I guess the question is how commonly would this happen? Is this something that you see every two weeks or a month or it's one? I think it's moon. very rare. Okay. 
Well, that's interesting then, because what I'm hearing from this then is, except in very specific cases, if I see a pulsatile uh, flow on my portal vein, a patient in AKI, I probably shouldn't give fluid. You should hesitate. You should hesitate. reconsider it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, keyword, hesitate, not, not do it. Hesitate and ask yourself questions. Back to the basics, right? One, one question, William. Uh, is this patient that you talk is still alive? Uh, well, I won't say, but uh, it, it was, it's, it's surprising because when I saw that, I, I thought he was, uh, he was really on, it was a, an extreme physiologic example. And all the intensivists told me that this patient will be dead uh, in less than a week. But uh, he survived very long. Very surprising. It was a chronic patient, so his body was accustomed yeah. to the. To it's this. quite impressive. Like I, I've worked a long time in a chronic pulmonary hypertension clinic, and I've seen patients, as you describe, with an index of one point five, walking in clinic, saying they feel fine and living for a very long time. And I'm sure their portal vein is a horrible, horrible thing. And it's actually interesting when you see them uh, after their lung transplants, you have indices sometimes like 1.6, 1.7, and you're like, wow, this isn't an, enough for them to sustain, but they're so used to it that this is actually sometimes, I would believe, more than they had before. And, and, and those extreme physiology, I, I think, um, are, are, are where we learn a lot about the limits of our tests. I don't know, would you agree, André? Absolutely, uh, and, 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 and life is also a humbling experience in the ICU. You often think, oh, this patient you know, will, be, will do bad and they do well, and some patient that you think uh, the opposite. But what we know, however, from the literature, for instance, uh, in patients with tricuspid regurgitation is that the presence of, of this of tricuspid regurgitation will decrease your survival. Mm -hmm. In the, in the long term, yeah. and, and we know this. And also what we know is that these patients, they have uh, very little reserve, very little reserve. So uh, as you know, when we do uh, general, even general anesthesia in those patients, the risk of mortality is extremely, extremely high because there's no reserve. And if you have one episode of hypotension in such a patient, that might be the last uh, episode. So this is a very, very high risk patient, definitely. I think it's the only time I've ever seen I'm going to move to a, a kind of a granulation question. Um, when you have patients that uh, you end up giving fluid and look at the, the, the VIXA scores, or the, the different parts of the VIXA score, is there one that seems to respond faster than the others to the volume infusion, or is that more or less all at the same time? Um, I'm, pu I'm pushing your limits right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question because uh, I, I'm known uh, in the ICU to give very little fluid because most of my patients already arrive with fluid overload, so it's 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 very uh, it's very rare, uh, and, and and I always try to examine them before we move to that to that step. Um, so I would say I, I pay more attention. For me, it's more an index of congestion than fluid responsiveness. For as as William as William mentioned, it's more a sign that tells me, "Oops, there's something going wrong with this with with this patient." 
and um, and maybe we mentioned it the last time, but we just completed a study on using a special Swan GANS, which gives you the right ventricular function and also uh, advanced measurements of right ventricular function. And just to tell you, after cardiac surgery, it's about 80% of patients who have right ventricular dysfunction. Okay, So it's a very, very common. And if you're unaware of this and you keep pushing fluids a lot on those patients, then that might contribute to uh, some of the complications that we see in, in, in those patients. So we, we haven't studied systematically a fluid challenge in the response to the VEXA score. That's a very int- important thing, I think, to know because people, I think I had this misconception that that's the way it, it was looked at to some extent, and, it, and it's clearly not. Um, William, anything you want to add to that? Because I'm sure you have a, an experience... Uh, in a different sphere of the world of medical well, care. Well, you said that you said um, uh, the, there's one component of the VEXA score which changed before the other. I don't think. I think it's all the it's all progress to the same extent. But one thing that uh, we did not look at in our studies is is, is that with uh, with the long term venous congestion, you will have. Uh, interstitial edema that will form. So, you know, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult to quantify, but sometimes we can see um, edematous uh, uh, gut mucosa, uh, for example, uh, increased diam- uh, diameter of the gut mucosa, or maybe increased uh, thickness of the gla- gallbladder, sometimes some things that we, we can see in advanced chronic uh, heart failure. So, so maybe, maybe there's other signs that we could integrate to this assessment to really uh, to, to really assess the interstitial component of the edema. In that regard, uh, uh, you remember, uh, William, there was a paper, I think it was from Japan, where they followed up uh, hundreds of patients with heart failure, and they found that the two best predictors of outcome in those patients was portal positivity and the thickness of the colon. Okay, so, and that probably brings into the concept of the cardiointestinal syndrome is that if you have so much uh, portal positivity, venous congestion, and then you start to having gut congestion, then you move on to endotoxemia and trans- bacterial translocation, and then you go into the inflammatory cir- uh, circle. And that's probably what is the underlying mechanism of this outcome related to uh, portal positivity. How interesting. So... That actually leads me to another question because we've talked, uh, well, amongst ourselves about the common femoral vein as a marker. But what it made me ask as a question is, now we're starting to be farther and farther from the heart. Does the distance at which your signs uh, add up, as an example, let's say I have portal and vaposilicility, but I don't have much common femoral vein, as an example. Does the Distance from the heart indicate the severity of how things are going, or it talks more about chronicity, as an example. Uh, it's a good question. We're we're just starting a prospective study on the femoral vein because we uh, we've seen it and it's been described many years ago. In fact, even in the uh, 19th century, okay, in the late 19th century, the clinicians were describing a very sick patient who had varices, peripheral varices that were pulsating. 
Okay. And initially, they didn't understand. They thought it was uh, an arterial transmission. But basically, it was the sign of severe right heart failure. And uh, and what we, we are seeing is basically, and all the concept of the vexus is based on the fact that if the right atrial pressure is elevated, the positivity, the transmission, will be seen distally in the periphery. So, um, and you can see it in the femoral vein, but you can also see it in the popliteal vein, you can see it in the brachial vein. And we've reported uh, with one of my former fellow in Switzerland, uh, a small uh, article we sent in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia where uh, we look at those, uh, it was look in Switzerland, uh, in Basel, in COVID-19 patients who were in uh, respiratory failure in the ICU. And in this institution, they have angiologists that do the venous Doppler on a regular basis. So every patient is examined. And what they found is that out of their 20 patients, there was four or five of them who had a femoral vein positivity. But as they were in the prone position, they were able to see the popliteal vein and they had popliteal vein positivity. So all these five patients, in fact, out of the, the court of 20 patients, all these patients died. In, in, you know, during their stay in the ICU, the other ones survive. And that basically tells you what we already know, that if you have right heart dysfunction, that's a bad, uh, it's a bad combination. So, so what we know is that it's transmitted in the periphery. Sometimes we, we think that if ever, uh, we look at the spleen also, and we have seen patients in which the port there's portal positivity, not splenic positivity, does it mean that it's not as severe as they have both? So these are some questions that we have, but for sure, the more severe it is, and, and you'll see, and this is physiologically, the more you're gonna see the transmission in the periphery. Okay. And the further you see it, the more severe that, that it is. Okay. And um, I was just in the uh, in the electrophysiology suite. We were doing a cardioversion in a patient with uh, cardiac amyloidosis, and just looking at his hands, you would see the dilated veins at rest on his hands. So you know this guy had significant right heart dysfunction and, and venous congestion. Well, you know, that's an old school trick to measure the JVP, is raise the hand of the patient and drop it progressively. And when the veins like pop out, that's your JVP. It's old school cardiologist testing. Valid? Not sure. Interesting and cool? Yeah. William, um, what, what do you think about that, about the, the degree of how far you end up um, finding a normal signal, as it called chronicity or severity or both? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that André said. The, the one interesting, uh, um, one interesting concept would be to in, to uh, install a pressure transducer on a peripheral vein, and if there is no there is no valve, maybe we can see, we can we can continuously monitor the venous pole, the transmission of the venous pulse to the periphery. Um, I think there's a few publications on that, but it's an inter interesting concept. Well, we like putting a, a, a CVB transducer on a femoral line, sort of. Not quite. It would be a, have to be a short line. Yeah. A few years ago, uh, with uh, Roger Desjardins, we did a study where we just measure uh, the CVP, and we measure the pressure also in the, uh, the antibrachial vein. Okay, and uh, they were nicely. There was a nice correlation. The only problem is that when you look at the, the number is similar, 
to what you have in the central, maybe a slightly, slightly higher. Uh, the, but the problem is that you lose the A wave and the V wave. So you don't have this, this, this type of information telling you about the uh, RV dysfunction. But, right. the, but the correlation was good. But do you think as, as Venus compliance, compliance diminished, the, the pressure will be transmitted and you'll see the, the CVP waveform as well as you will see it in the central vein catheter? I don't you, you, uh, you don't see it as well. It's damp. The signal is damp. You can see some wave. It's, the signal is, is, is damp. But the, the value will always be the same or even higher because the venous pressure is higher in the periphery than it is. In. But the difference is, is not that, that great. It was about less than one or two millimeter of mercury. Wonderful. So um, we've kind of touched a little bit upon those special populations now. Um, and I think the first one we talked about was sepsis and the validity of sepsis. So since we talked with, about sepsis a little bit, I just want to know from, from you, what's the evidence of using this in sepsis straight up? And we'll talk about physiology if there's something that comes out from this evidence. So um, we recently had a uh, webinar last uh, last month uh, in um, in a group in, in Ireland, and I'll I'll send you the link. And um, uh, I would say my experience here is more in cardiac, but uh, uh, Philip Rolla and his uh, and other colleagues have started looking at it in the intensive care unit, and also there's been a report also in emergency rooms. So everyone was presenting their experience based on their specific population. And uh, so far, they seem to um, make similar observations than what we had in uh, cardiac surgery, uh, because basically it's a physiological phenomenon. And uh, so the, 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 the difference is that the mechanism uh, might be different in some cases, but in sepsis, uh, remember that uh, when you start doing ultrasound, uh, what's been described, it's up to 60 percent of not only left ventricular but also right ventricular dysfunction and what's been people have been focusing a lot on the left ventricle but there's a lot of probably much more right ventricular dysfunction than people may think there is so if those patients are aggressively fluid resuscitated they will develop signs of venous congestion uh, in in those in those patients but even that is complicated because it depends a little bit why they're septic as an example, and I have never seen that in a textbook, but we classically say that when uh, when you're sep when you're septic, your pulmonary vascular resistance increases. Well, it works if you have pneumonia, but in my experience, when you have sepsis from another source, I've seen the opposite actually, and that would have a significant impact also of what happens to your RV. Even if you have a septic myopathy, you might have low afterload in those patients from a pulmonary point of view, and maybe your pressures won't be as high as if you had pneumonia with the same RV cardiomyopathy. So I guess that affects it, but it makes it very, very hard to know what to do because that population behaves in a lot of different ways, even though we tend to believe that sepsis is pretty similar from patient to patient in the grand scheme of things. But always remember that the treatment of sepsis is antibiotics. 
it's not fluid okay and uh, fluid is fluid and vasopressors are just there to keep the patient alive while the antibiotics are working and you hope to give the good antibiotics because that will also affect their survival. So what you want to do is to maintain those patients alive while the antibiotic is, is given as soon as possible and we know what happens if there's a delay. And then you have to just be careful not make things worse by giving too much fluids in someone who already has some degree of right ventricular dysfunction. And this is where probably the VEXA score can be helpful as saying, to, oh, uh, you know, now you have portal positivity, the pressure is a bit low. Uh, maybe you should start using uh, vasopressors instead of just pushing on giving more and more fluid and, and making the patient worse. But I'll hang on to one word you said, I think we have to read or as a point is now the portal vein is pulsatile. So there's a dynamic aspect of what happened during resuscitation that, that matters more than what you end up getting at that point for the reasons we mentioned in multiple, multiple times up to now. Anything to add, William, regarding all this? As a nephrologist, I, came, I come late to the sepsis patient when it's time to begin kidney replacement therapy or to treat severe AKI. And as I said earlier, uh, sometimes it helped me uh, decide it's the right if it's the right time now to remove fluid, is it is it better if we use continuous or intermittent kidney replacement therapy? So that might be helpful in that regard. As a nephrologist, you end up putting people on CVH more often than you'd say right now that you, you, you're trying to say here. Uh, here's my question, though. So because you're seeing those patients all the time and you're seeing them when they have AKI, uh, how often, from an intrarenal Doppler point of view, not portal vein anymore, intrarenal, how often do you see the severe intrarenal Doppler congestion profile in, in those patients? Is it very frequent or is it infrequent? So in sepsis, uh, I would say that it's much less frequent than in cardiac surgery, I would say. Of course, as uh, we said in the first podcast, as when, when acute kidney injury becomes severe, it's became, become increasingly difficult to form the kidney Doppler. So that's a limitation, of course. And then, of course, there's a question regarding kidney disease, which is a special population that was asked about. And, and the follow-up question to that is, when, let's say you have ATM, in your recovery phase of ATM, what happens to your intrarenal, portal vein, and so on? Portal vein might, might be less of an issue, but intrarenal, what happens to that signal? So, well... Even if the patient is anoric, usually you will have a signal on color Doppler and the kidney resistive index will be elevated on the, in the phase and will usually, uh, during kidney recovery, will, will, will improve. Uh, maybe not return to, to baseline, but will improve. Um, I, don't, uh, I can't say that uh, the, the renal resistive index uh, helped me so far to predict kidney recovery, but that will be an interesting topic to explore. Very well. Um, kind of a, a question here, because um, we talk about AKI a lot, but what about chronic kidney disease? When, when do you think comes difficult to interpret? And what I mean by that is not the morphology of the kidney. I mean, what degree, what stage of AKI does everything seems to kind of fall apart in terms of being able to derive any useful information from it. Yeah, chronic kidney disease is not it's just not one, one disease, it's multiple disease. And for example, diabetic chronic kidney disease, will, the, the, kidney, uh, the, the kidney size will remain normal a long time and kidney Doppler will be more 
would be easier to do, but if there's renal atrophy, it becomes increasingly difficult. And of course, with chronic kidney disease, the renal resistive index, the baseline renal resistive index that we often don't have will increase. So it becomes a, a, a lot more difficult to see. Well, there is a elevated renal resistive index, but is it because of chronic kidney disease or because of the AKI? Really, beca- really become hard to make the difference. And uh, and for the renal, the the venous form in chronic kidney disease, there's not much data, but there is a publication in Diabetic Chronic Kidney Disease that tend to uh, to say that that showed that diabetic chronic kidney disease uh, can have a higher venous impedance index, but the pattern usually remain uh, normal or mildly abnormal, so it shouldn't create a, a type 3 pattern with only fluid diastole. Is there is there any data in terms of adjusting your dry weight for dialysis based on Hyder portal vein vexus, or as a paper that we, we, we kind of sent me this week, uh, lung ultrasound, or in combination of all these things, anything in that sphere that you, you might mm-hmm. want to touch upon? There's absolutely nothing on, on venous Doppler, but uh, nephrologists have been interested in lung ultrasound for uh, for a few years now, and, and there there's interesting studies about that. Um, we did one at uh, at the SHUM uh, a few years ago, showing that the patient who had still B-lines, a lot of B-lines, after dialysis were more likely to be hospitalized for pulmonary edema and had a lower prognosis in general. Um, and there's a randomized control trial going on uh, sh- uh, to, to investigate whether following B-lines and, and, and adjusting dry weight based on B-lines would improve prognosis. Very interesting. I'm going to move to a topic where I know there's not a lot of evidence because I purposely went and did the review to try to figure it out. But I'm curious about the experiences because at this point, it's going to be all experience-based and it's more for Christian Fondry. What about ECMO? What happens with ECMO? Yeah, that's a very uh, good question. In fact, what happens with ECMO if you're really uh, reducing uh, your venous pressure, uh, you cannot use this, uh, these signals because most of the time they will be normal. Okay? So, that's, uh, so, so it's very, very difficult uh, to decide how uh, these elements will be useful to you uh, when you're on ECMO. However, when you're weaning ECMO, okay, and you are failing. What you will see, you'll see portal positivity appearing, being significant as you're winning ECMO because you're having severe right ventricular failure. So I see these uh, ultrasound uh, signals mostly useful as you're winning ECMO and you're, you want to know if you're going to be able to win it because one of the signs that you're developing out right ventricular dysfunction will be the appearance of those uh, of those elements so um so so far that that's that's been our, our experience so it's a very difficult situation because these ECMO patients they t- often tend to receive a lot of fluid and it's very hard to decide how you're going to you know uh, manage the fluid resuscitation uh, in in such patients so we um, uh, these signs we we have no evidence so far that uh, you know we we can use those while they are on full ecmo full arteriovenous ecmo i would say and you, you yeah that's it you're talking about venous arterial ecmo um it, it's interesting because a, a couple of people have have said well you can't 
do anything because you have a cannula in your IVC, so everything's going to be blunted. A little bit similar the parallel to hepatic stenosis after transplant. But what I found for a couple of animal papers is that that's not necessarily true, actually. And that obstruction is just making it like a high-compliant system, which makes it more likely maybe to, to have pulsatility in the portal vein than if you didn't have it because you're full. You're full with something structural at this point. At the same time, you have the interaction of the fact that you're, you're decompressing your RV. So, but I think we still need to remember that most VECMO patients still have cardiac contractions and they have some native output. And so that contraction exists and can be transmitted. It might not be a very forceful one, but in the right setting where you have everything in play, including a big cannula in there, to increase transmission and decrease compliance, then it might be possible. Well, it is possible, you just told us, essentially. Yeah, when you're winning it and when you fail, you'll see significant portal positivity because you can still have... But remember, to have positivity, you need to have an open channel between the atrium and the venous system. Okay, and that's, that's the, first, uh, the first condition. And, uh, and again, the higher the pressure, there will be the more likely the, there's going to be post-transmission. I saw an interesting paper uh, that I read today about uh, an animal model for VA ECMO uh, in pigs. And it was a trauma model that I tried to figure out to see how to deal with liver bleeds. It was very interesting when you look at it is that portal flow didn't necessarily change with an ECMO on, on course if your RV loading conditions, meaning from PVR and all this stuff, was not abnormal. But a second that they increased the PEEP as an example and loaded the patient's fluid, suddenly the flow increased. And that was because they were perfusing the patients better, uh, despite the fact that there was the high, the high PEEP. Um, and it, it, it's a little bit of a, a funny situation to think that your flow would increase, but your postility would also be abnormal, which I'm not sure how to put it all together in a, in a neat package. Any thoughts? <laughs> Maybe, but, but remember, William, when we look at the relationship between the portal positivity mm. and the mean arterial pressure and the central venous pressure, you want to comment on that? Yeah, so in our, our studies, our cohort studies, we, we've seen the correlation with, with central venous pressure, with right ventricular pressure, uh, but also with mean arterial pressure and cardiac index. And uh, one of the reasons that might be the case is that Beyond being a reflective of increased venous pressure, if your cardiac output decreases and the, 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 your, your uh, gastrointestinal tract, for example, uh, has reduced perfusion, um, there, it, it could also increase pulsatility because the gradient will be lower between the liver sinusoid and the end of the capillary bed. And what, what, what the flow with this gradient? So this creates uh, increased portal flow pulsatility in that regard. And that's, why, that's maybe why portal flow pulsatility uh, predict, uh, tend to, to predict complication, because it's really an, uh, re reflective of the impact of venous congestion, uh, and it may be better than a pure central venous pressure measurement. Very interesting. No, so don't quote me on what the paper said. And actually, we'll, we'll talk about this paper in a small little podcast that we said we're going to do in more detail to kind of look over it and, and 
comment on it. I, I would just, for our listeners, retain the explanation and not what I actually said, because I might have just misread the paper 100%. I'm quoting it off the book right now. So um, what about VV ECMO? Have you, have you seen anything in VV ECMO regarding using this? Uh, I've, uh, at the Heart Institute, we have less experience on uh, VV ECMO. Uh, so I, have, I would say I would rather uh, have not enough, not enough experience to, to really comment. Again, you are completely draining, draining the, the right side of the heart. So, uh, and you are reinfusing it also back, back there. So I don't know if that would be influenced, but I would say uh, I would rather not comment because I have not enough experience. I think that's fair, and if we go, I put, I, I, if I if I granulate that a bit more, w when I think about it, I would say, well, it also depends on how you are cannulating, are you positioned, are you using an Avalon that directs directly into the tricuspid valve, because then if you're depressing your RA but you're injecting directly into your RV past tricuspid valve, it might not be the same as having a cannula in the SVC loading it back in the RA. So I think. With all that we've mentioned about ECMO and everything else, and on top of that, it's anybody's guess what it does, and it needs a lot more observational studies, which I'll try to find some ECMOs and get some signals. Um, another question that came up um, in terms of uh, pathologies is uh, intra-abdominal hypertension. So what would be the impact on, on Mexus, and in this situation, probably more portal vein and kidney, in terms of the grades of, of the VEXUS core? Yeah, that's a good question, and we don't have too much data. However, we know there's been a couple of studies looking at uh, uh, Doppler signals in portal hypertension. So when you have severe abdominal, sorry, abdominal hypertension and compartment syndrome, what you will see with ultrasound is the inferior vena cava would become smaller and smaller. And also, when you look at the portal uh, velocities and also the renal velocities, the, you have an, have an increase in your renal resistance, your hepatic artery resistance, so the diastolic flow becomes small, and the portal uh, positivity will be probably reduced because there's reduction in flow into the abdomen. So, however, the question, and, and this is a very important question because we recently uh, report our experience in cardiac surgical patient, how often do you have uh, elevated abdominal pressure in cardiac surgical patient? And William is the senior author of this paper. We just, uh, we're just, it's been reviewed in the Canadian Journal of, uh, of Anesthesia, and it's more than 50%, about up to 50 and 60% of patients have uh, abdominal pressure more than 12, and uh, it correlates uh, with the BMI. So bigger the patients are, the more likely you're going to have increase in your uh, abdominal pressure, and also it correlates also with your CVP. Uh, however, uh, we didn't look at that point when we did the study at the, the, sig the portal uh, signal. One thing, however, you can use to diagnose this condition, and this is something we've uh, published, is you can use uh, brain and somatic oximetry. So if you use somatic oximetry and you put the sensors on the legs and the sensors on the arm, you'll see a significant difference. Okay, So when you have significant portal abdominal compartment syndrome, the, uh, the venous congestion will create a reduction in the low extremity uh, oximetry, and it will be normal in the upper extremity. So the other day I was in the ICU and a patient who had uh, elevated abdominal pressure. And what I did, I just took a femoral vein Doppler 
and I look at the Brickell vein Doppler, okay, and there was no difference, okay. So basically, I was not concerned. In fact, this patient had no porthole positivity, so I was not, I was not concerned at this point in this patient that this was a, a component. But for sure, if the abdominal pressure increased and up to one point, and we know that if you have compartment syndrome and you are not able to, to uh, correct it, your mortality will be very, very high. So definitively, this, this can affect the, the signal. But the most important thing is to be aware that this is an important diagnosis to make. And if there's any doubt, any risk factors, as reported by the uh, World Society of uh, Compartment Syndrome, abdominal compartments, you absolutely need to measure this uh, on a regular basis. And let's let's move on because we're in the abdomen now. Let's talk about liver disease. Can I just add something? Absolutely, I'm sorry about that. No problem. Uh, but I, I'm glad you bring the issue of intraabdominal hypertension because if we consider the current vexus grading system, as Andre said, uh, it intra abdominal hypertension may, might modify the appearance of the inferior vena cava, uh, and because it is currently the first step in the vexus algorithm it may be a caveat of the current vexus grading system. So something to keep in mind. Very interesting. So in terms of the liver, I think one of the big things that I never know what to do with is what's the degree of liver disease that is going to affect the score? Um, I'm looking at both of you and I'm guessing I'm hitting a point that's a bit sensitive right now. And we don't know much about. But this is a good point. And in fact, in all of our studies, we include we exclude a patient with cirrhosis, okay, which uh, which definitively can produce portal positivity. However, as we you know gain more and more experience in these uh, in these uh, signals, probably one of the way that you could exclude uh, if you have liver disease and said, oh, is that contributing to portal positivity or not? would be to look somewhere else, okay? And one, probably the simplest way would, look, would be to look at the femoral vein, okay? Because if you have right heart dysfunction, significant, you'll have portal positivity, regardless of the liver function, but you'll also have femoral positivity. If you just have pure uh, liver disease, the femoral vein will be normal okay, in those patients. So that could be one way to see what is the interference of uh, this condition to uh, the femoral vein. Another case we had also, and actually were uh, studying the correlation between the portal vein and the splenic vein. So we had one case of a patient who had severe cirrhosis and it was uh, fluid overload and this patient was having dialysis. And when you look at the liver, it was a, an abnormal liver and there was no portal positivity. However, when we look at the spleen, there was significant splenic venous Doppler positivity in this patient. So it's possible that if you have significant fibrosis, you won't be able to pulse, have pulse, any positivity in the liver because it's, 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 it's like a brick, okay? So there's going to be... But if you have splenic positivity, that means there's the pressure is high. And in fact, this patient uh, was dialyzed uh, with three, four liters and extremely well tolerated, no hypotension, and uh, was this. So again, this point, this, this, this raised the issue of never look at one signal alone, put all the signals together and take a decision based on all the information. Anything else, William? Yeah, as you said, the, in, when you look at the literature, it's really the, there's really some wide variability. Some reports report that, that liver disease will increase portal pulsatility, the portal pulsatility of portal flow, but others say that there will be decreased 
portal pulsatilities. So it probably depends on, on, on particular liver disease. Is, is this just liver steatosis or is it in the advanced cirrhosis stage uh, when, uh, as you said, the, the, the liver is very... Uh, so, so it's probably multifactorial. Uh, and, and many of the, the studies in which they look at uh, portal positivity in liver disease, they did not examine the heart. They didn't look if there was pulmonary hypertension because you can have liver disease and pulmonary hypertension. And that maybe, maybe these are the ones who have portal positivity, you know, with, who has RV dysfunction. So because now we have the ability to just look at one organ, I think uh, some light will be... Uh, will be uh, more, it's going to be more clear probably in the future. Excellent. I have a question now um, on pulmonary hypertension, since we're talking about it. This is w working wonderfully in terms of segues. Um, Daniel Lopazzo asks, any tips on diuretic therapy guidance in patients with moderate severe pulmonary hypertension and Vexus 3? Should you aim for a normalized Vexus pattern or is it impossible slash dangerous? That's a very good question. I would say I would be prudent in those patients. Uh, we just reported in August of uh, of this year, uh, it, it made the cover page of the Journal of Cardiovascular and uh, Thoracic Anesthesia, uh, a case of a patient who came for aortic dissection. And uh, this patient had no past medical history, maybe sleep apnea. Uh, but when we examined him before sending him in the operating room, there was significant femoral vein positivity, portal vein positivity. And the reason was that the dissection was creating an aneurysm that was compressing the main pulmonary artery trunk. Okay? And that was the reason he had positivity. So this patient basically has a positivity which would not have improved with diuretics, okay? and maybe would, would have making worse. So that's why it's so important, as we mentioned initially, to know what's the reason. And also you have to be careful, because what you know is that this is a high-risk patient, uh, and and probably the treatment in this patient with pulmonary hypertension uh, might not be the use of diuretics, but maybe the use of uh, NL vasodilators or patients who, or or agents would be much more uh, pulmonary selective than uh, than just removing fluid in those patients. No, oh, absolutely, and, and and I've had a patient as an example recently who was awaiting a lung transplant for precapillary pulmonary hypertension and was developing renal failure in the last couple days before her expert physician who's done this for like 30 years is actually giving her a little bit of fluid and it was helping so it, it, it's and, and you would look at a heart and just go that heart's about to explode there's no way i should give this patient fluid and yet that was seemed to have been a reasonable thing to do in this one another question about this and that's that's one of my personal questions um do you think there is a difference between capillary pulmonary hypertension and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension in terms of VEXA scores or combination of elements relating to venous congestion? Well, I guess, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe the follow-up will be different. Uh, uh, it's not my expertise, but, but, but I, I, I suppose that uh, pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension is a chronic condition. And you know, as we said, uh, some patient may, may be uh, may have postnatal portal vein that is a fixed parameter that you won't be able to change much, and the window for intervention will be very uh, 
now, post-capillary uh, pulmonary hypertension will be very uh, heterogeneous. It can be acute uh, left ventricular dysfunction or, or more like a chronic advanced cr chronic uh, cardiac failure. So uh, I guess it's it's a very it's a very large topic, and I don't I don't think there's a clear answer that that may uh, that may that may be applicable to all patients. Yeah. I don't think the VEXR score will be able to make the difference. I think that's a fair point. It's, it's what I was trying to, to get if you had experience on that, because the, if you look at a patient with post-capital pulmonary hypertension, like end stage, they end up developing a transpulmonary gradient anyway. With, and to some extent, they, they do look a little bit in that way to pre in the same sense as pre-capital hypertension. And I suspect, too, you probably wouldn't be able to make a difference. I have a question for you because I don't have a, a much experience, but does uh, um, Doppler of the right uh, ventricular outflow track with the notching? Do you remember that? Would it be interesting to do in the, this, uh, this case? It's interesting to do because it talks to compliance of the pulmonary artery, which I suspect, but I can't say for sure, would be a difference between the two because patients with precapillary pulmonary tension are not their vascular path of that segment. And I, I personally believe that post-capillary don't get the same amount of abnorm abnormal tissue in the pulmonary artery. They do get to some extent, but when you put those patients on the VAT as an example, and a lot of them have transpulmonary gradients, within a month, those patients sometimes have completely normal pulmonary pressures. Um, so there is some degree of conversion in those post-capillary patients in terms of adding are a little bit of artery thickening, but it's nowhere, I think, as bad as a patient with the primary disease. So it would be actually quite interesting to, 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 to look at that notching sign. The, the notch, I've seen it mostly in pre-capillary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, and uh, the last case I had was a patient who has uh, end-stage pulmonary fibrosis. And it was interesting because um, uh, not only you would see the notch in the pulmonary artery uh, when you look at it, but this patient on the femoral vein had a velocity, a reverse velocity of almost 100 centimeter per second, the highest I've ever seen. Okay, so, so again, it's a, and I think for the clinician, uh, just looking at a femoral vein with a Doppler is extremely short, fast, and it's so rich of information that, uh, but it does not tell you what's the diagnosis. But the, I can tell you that the highest value I've seen was with pulmonary hypertension. The other elements also that we don't talk in the VEXR score is when you look at the hepatic vein Doppler and you have a natural reversal, which is significant, more than 50% of your systolic wave, this is also suggestive that you have uh, pulmonary hypertension also. So that could be something that help you in the diagnosis. I find that comment about uh, commercial vein velocity quite interesting because uh, it makes me think about the um, acceleration time of, uh, that you can, you can pulse into the RVOT, and we know it's abnormal and slowed down in pulmonary hypertension patients but that's the forward flow. And yours is the backward flow where you don't have as much resistance, which would go with really high velocities on the heart. It's trained to push against something that's quite resistant. So it'd be interesting to look at those two together to some extent, right? I think I have one last set of questions um, and they're more physiologic physiological based questions. And they're asked by uh, Katie Whiskar. Um, the questions, the following, it relates to severe tricuspid regurgitation. And she asks, the reversal of S-wave on hepatic vein is often associated with tricuspid regurgitation. 
How true is it that the relation? How true is that relationship? And why would you have reversed F S wave without TR? Yeah, that's uh, something we see regularly uh, because uh, what happens when um, you have a uh, the S wave depends on the motion of your tricuspid annulus during systole. Okay, so what's happening is that during systole, the tricuspid annulus moves toward the apex. And this has reduced the pressure in the right atrium. So this is when you have your X descent. And normally the X descent is lower than when the valve opens and the pressure goes down in the right atrium, which is the Y descent. So during the X descent, what happened is flow goes in sister during systole from the hepatic vein into the right atrium. And that's why your systolic wave on your hepatic Doppler is always higher than the diastolic wave because the same way as your X descent is deeper than the Y descent. Okay? So when you have right ventricular dysfunction, even if your tricuspid is completely competent, what will happen is there's going to be no movement of the tricuspid annulus. Okay, So there's going to be no X descent, there's going to be no S wave. And sometime, as during systole, what will happen is that the pressure that increases in the right ventricle might push the tricuspid valve backward, and this will create a reverse S wave uh, on the hepatic vein. So that's why when you, that's why you can see uh, a reversal S wave without any significant tricuspid regurgitation. And we had case that th this is even so severe that you can have even not only portal positivity, but have a case where you have a reversal in uh, your portal vein, and this is a sign of a severe right ventricular, right ventricular dysfunction. So definitively, when you have severe TR, you'll have reversal in your S-wave, you can have portal positivity. But we have patients who have TR, but don't necessarily have portal positivity. So the question is that in those patients with TR, how much fluid can you remove? Where do you stop? Uh, how often uh, will that improve the condition? And these are questions, uh, you know, that are still uh, open for that reason. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because uh, there's there's two things I think that um, talk about regarding that point is that, from my experience doing a lot of echoes on outpatient with precapillary pulmonary hypertension, unless you're on Death's door, a lot of these patients don't have significant TR. Some of them don't have any TR, but I can tell you, all have reversal RDS wave, and that's without it. So that goes very much with what, what you're saying. And in those patients also at the end, the last thing to go is that longitudinal motion at the annulus. So they probably have a lot more of that S wave because they still have that little motion of the tricuspid and that transmission of pressure to the tricuspid valve. The other thing I want to bring forward is that you don't, you don't, you can have significant reversal probably with only even mild to moderate. It depends on how stiff your RA is. And patients with on the left side of the heart, I've seen it multiple times with like mild to moderate MR and reversal in the pulmonary veins. And that's because the LA was so stiff. I assume it applies also to the right side. And I can think of one pathology where you'd see it more. It's amyloidosis probably because they get stiff and those those. RNL usually not necessarily that big, but they're infiltrated and their strain would be non-existent. So I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm completely 
misunderstanding physiology. No, no. In fact, uh, I don't know if uh, there's a lot of literature coming out now on the measurement of the left atrial strain and also recently on the right atrial strain. And, and this will probably, and this is some areas which will need to be studied, but I wouldn't be surprised that this will correlate with the signs of venous congestion also because it's all basically how stiff is your right atrium or left atrium. And that's a bad prognosis also. That's a bad prognosis. Yeah, I have nothing to add uh, uh, to to what you already said uh, about that. Uh, I think it's really really a clear explanation why you can have a reverse systolic uh, even if you don't have necessary tricuspid regurgitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say I think the the second part of the question is how common is it? It depends on your population because in specific populations it's super common, and in other ones you wouldn't see it. So you need to know a little bit more of what your heart looks like, not just what your VEXA score is like. Yeah. But if you have a post-op heart patient that you're taking care in the emergency room or anywhere, uh, don't be surprised that the majority of those patients, and we did uh, uh, longitudinal studies up to one month, and the majority will still have abnormal uh, systolic wave in the hepatic vein uh, up to a one month after, after cardiac surgery. Well, we do know that the TAPC can never normalize. Yeah. And a fair amount of patients, actually up to 50% of patients have abnormal longitudinal function up to three years, the last paper I saw. Yeah. With, with, but with normal EF, if you look at R3D Echo, which, which, which tells you a lot about how TAPC is not maybe the best. Do you have any other subjects, because we've covered a wide range of topics, that you would like to share some wisdom about? Yeah. Well, maybe one, one area which, I, 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 you know, sometimes you learn by mistake, but um, always um, keep in mind that often, you know, I often call it anesthesiologists, we do cardioversion, we do the anesthesia for cardioversion, and there's some patients in which it's extremely well tolerated, another one who will crash their blood pressure. And typically the one, if there's in one area where uh, vexus or even looking just at the femoral vein is very useful, is before cardioversion. Because if you have atrial fibrillation, and your tachycardia is in the presence of right ventricular dysfunction if you have significant port portal positivity or femoral vein positivity, and you slow down the heart rate with the cardioversion on those patients, you will expect significant hypotension. So I would say just be careful, prepare your vasopressors, because these patients will crash their blood pressure. And I learned it uh, over, over and over the years. So uh, I always, when I do the cardioversion of those patients, I would always combine it with uh, vasopressors, uh, vasopressor agents. And, and this is something like practical, and you can do those cardioversion in emergency room, in the ICU, anywhere. But just be careful, prepare your vasoactive drugs, because if they have RV dysfunction, the tachycardia, is compensating the fibrillation is compensating and if you reduce the heart rate they uh, they will drop their blood pressure and uh, did you see this uh, also uh, so often it's yeah. it's one of my it, it, it's something that um i always are mindful about and that's why i don't do as many cardioversions because i think one of the main spots for doing cardioversion safely is the young patient who comes in with a very clear supraventricular cardia most of the patients i see as a general internist are not that patient most of the patients I see as an intensivist are compensated for something. And I would actually say that some patients go into AFib to compensate in specific situations because they're trying to get their heart rate to be higher. It's the only way they manage to do it because from the sinus note, they ain't able to do it. And I'm sure you've seen this before as well. And then you convert them and they were in sepsis and you were thinking, oh, they're getting worse because they're running at 120, 130. Bam, conversion. 
massive amount of vasopressors and you're kicking yourself. Exactly. <laughs> How interesting, right? W wisdom is a series of mistakes over the years. Yeah, they say the experience is the number of uh, mistakes you do in your life. I always tell my resident, you'll never have more experience than me. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope to become <laughs> as wise as you are. <laughs> well, I, I, my goal is to share my experience so you won't have to do the same mistakes I did. One mistake at a time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's like one of my one of my anesthetist cardiac anesthetists I work with uh, used to say, "I'm going to create a safe learning environment where you can make mistakes because there's very little I can't fix." <laughs> I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at education. So, with that, if uh, we don't have anything else we want to share, we'll put this uh, little discussion to a close, uh, and um, we will post this. And I'm if you have any additional questions, I'm pretty sure that the two gentlemen here will be okay with sitting down with me and answering questions for a third time. Thanks everyone.